On this episode, we review tax saving for real estate investors. My guest, Ryan Bakey, and I discuss how the Trump tax deduction works, when to use cost segregation as well as what it is, and what tax strategy for real estate investors is often missed. As always, if this episode helps you, brings you value in any way, please do me a favor, share it with a friend. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to Build Your Wealth Muscle, a podcast dedicated to helping fitness entrepreneurs build wealth by saving taxes and growing their money. Each episode will break down different strategies in the areas of business, tax, and retirement planning specifically for your coaching business. Disclaimer, the topics covered in this podcast are for educational purposes only. This is not advice for your specific situation. Please consult a qualified financial or tax professional before making any changes to your financial or tax situation. Now here's your host, certified financial planner and tax advisor, Pat Darby. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Build Your Wealth Muscle. For those who are new, we have two show formats. Well, first of all, welcome to those who are new. And uh, the first show format is solo, where I can do pretty deep dive on finance, tax, cash flow planning. Um, and then like today's episode, we bring on guests and they could be uh, similar to you that other online coaches or business owners, or they help support your industry, tax, legal, etc., sales marketing. Today, we have a tax expert with us, Ryan Bakey, CPA. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So this is an in-person, I catch like not looking my thing, yeah. but uh works out pretty well. So you're here in Vegas for bachelor party? Yeah, we'll call it that. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I, I have an accounting finance degree. That's what I went to school for. I really enjoyed numbers, not the calculus and the trigonometry that they harp on in school, but really, you know, fifth grade math, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And so I've, I've understood that at a very small scale. And soon at a very larger scale. I had a finance professor that was really into commercial real estate and she had you know done a bunch of stuff on Wall Street before. And so I was really interested in real estate when I was in college, but it really wasn't until I got out into the working field and I kind of saw how the the, um, the tax code favored the rich and wealthy people tremendously. And so I figured out, I figured that I wanted to learn everything that there was to know about that. So I spent about two years working at Deloitte Consulting, uh, doing investment banking and hedge funds real estate syndication consulting for uh, large investment banks. And then I eventually started my own firm. And it was really because at Deloitte, I was making people who are already rich and wealthy become even more rich and wealthy. And I decided that not I didn't want to help the everyday person become rich because I don't think everybody is cut out for it. But I wanted to help the person in their family tree that wanted to become rich or you know change their family tree. So how did you go? You said mentioned that there was a professor that did commercial real estate. So for those who don't know you specialize in real estate yeah for your clients so what transitioning from all like we're sort of talking about this a little bit offline of all the tax code was it that class what helped you pick real estate versus all the other specialties yeah. in tax i think when you look at what the tax code is made up so congress writes the tax code the irs just enforces it right and when you look at congress being made up of basically investors, business owners, and people who own real estate, it's no wonder that the tax code sort of favors or really, it's, I don't say favors or you know helps, but it incentivizes certain behavior, right? If, if the government wants you to employ people, build buildings, they're going to give you 
tax credits, tax deductions, incentivize those certain behaviors. And it just so happens, we really out of all those three, um, due, due to three principles of debt, taxes, and inflation, real estate really edges out over just the investor or the business owner. Yeah. So do you have inside of your specialty of real estate, do you have a specific type like commercial? Like if so, anyone listening, they commercial versus single family, do you have one that yeah. you favor versus the other the majority of your clients? Yeah. When I first started off, it was more so on the multifamily side, single family residents. Right now, the short-term rentals are the hot thing. I would probably say 70% of clients coming in are coming in because of short-term rentals. But I'm I'm very well versed in all types of rental real estate, you know, from commercial. I personally have campgrounds, RVs, uh, single-family homes, multifamily homes, short-term rentals. So I, I invest in those those items, and then I also coach and educate clients on them as well. Okay. Now let's dive into for any listener that is unfamiliar with the tax code for. Mm -hmm real estate. Let's dive into some of the tactics there. So explain to people, like everyone pays attention to like what happened the last few years with like Trump and they're like, why did he pay no tax? Yeah. Explain that to people who don't understand when like other tax professionals, yeah, it's depreciation. That's why he didn't pay. Break that down for people if you could, why people like him get these huge tax breaks mm -hmm. and what part of the tax code is the reason. Yeah, it really comes down to, I always tell people, it's not about how much money you make, but it's how you make it. It's the vehicle in the shape or form of actually how you make that income. You know, whether or not you're showing up at, for a W-2 job or you're a business owner, or are you making that through passive investments like real estate and other businesses that you might be a passive investor in? So, for example, in one of uh, Trump's tax returns 2020, he reported about $300,000 of W-2 wages on line one for being the president of the United States. But he had over you know eleven million dollars in other income that was in more so those passive investor buckets. And with passive income, you're you're essentially able to use passive losses if you have enough depreciation and expenses from other businesses in order to offset your passive income. So if you're just a W two making three hundred k, you know the only way to offset that is really to not work uh, or have three hundred thousand of real you know actual losses you know, or just have a million kids. <laughs> but there's really no ways if you're just a W-2, you know, employee, that there's very seldom things that you can utilize uh, in the tax code versus if you're an entrepreneur, a business owner, and you own, you know, especially a lot of rental properties, there's things there that you can do. And essentially what it comes down to is figuring out, okay, how much passive income do I have? You know, whether it's between my multifamily, short-term rental, commercial, and then how much depreciation do I need to offset that income? And then if those two are equal every single year, you wipe them out and you don't pay any taxes, just like Donald Trump. So if you're someone listening and you're like, okay, I'm running an online business. How do I do what Trump did? Mm -hmm. Not everyone can do it. What's the, when can someone versus can they not? Yeah. So I would say if you're bootstrapping your online business, so you're the one who's building the coaching programs, you're the one who's maybe, you know, implementing, doing the day to day, you know, that's not going to be a, passive sort of investment vehicle that's going to be considered ordinary income but a way in which you could potentially get uh you know fitness coaching bit income to be passive is let's say i wanted to invest in your fitness coach brand or i wanted to give you money to go you do your own thing in the space that's a passive investment to me and that that's actually what i do with laundromats and hair salons so if i'm a if i'm a passive investor i receive income from that i can use losses from my my rental properties offset that income. So if I invested in somebody's online fitness coach as an investor, right, and I receive income from that, I can use losses from rental properties to help offset that. But if I'm the one 
really working in the day-to-day operations of the fitness business, I'm not going to be able to really take away some of the Trump stuff. So explain that. It's called material, participate, part, uh, material participation. How, how does that work for people? If someone's listening, you know, like, I think I qualify for that or I've read about it. How can they differentiate in their head what that means and if they yeah. may or may not qualify? Yeah, so material participation was, it started in 1993. And basically what happened was, is uh, before 19, you know, before, well, before 1986, all income together was considered one. So you would have doctors, uh, high, high paid uh, lawyers, you know, attorneys, they make a ton of money at their job. And then they would just have a bunch of rental losses. And the two would net each other without any, any sort of special rules. And it wasn't until 1986 where they said, Hey, well, you know, you, you know, the joke used to be two doctors invest into a building together. What do you call it? A rental property, a tax shelter, oh. <laughs> because they would use the losses from the, the rental property to offset their doctor's salary. Right. Sure. So in 1986, Congress basically put a stop to that. They said, Hey, um, you know, there's going to be earned income. There's going to be, pa- you know, there's going to be passive income, two buckets, non-passive and passive. And what happened was is about, you know, six to seven years in real estate tends to have the best lobbyists uh, out of any sort of group in the country. Well, they said, well, you know, people on the real estate side said, well, if a doctor has a practice that has income, and he also has a practice that has a loss. He's able to offset those two together. But if I have a fixed and flip business that has income, or if I'm a realtor and I have income and my rental properties show a loss, I'm not able to offset those two together. And that's where sort of this real estate professional status material participation thing was born, where if you you know are in real estate professional, if you yeah. fix or, fix and flipper, you know, wholesaler, realtor, property manager, and you do what's called material participation in your rentals then you can use those losses to offset your active income from your business. And really material participation, what it boils down to is you, you really have to be the one that's self-managing all your properties. You can't really, you can't have a property manager or in a short-term rental space, we call a co-host. So let's dive into that. So for what is someone allowed to outsource and still maintain their real estate professional status? It's not necessarily how much they can outsource. It really, does come down to an hours test. So the two easiest tests that we see people meet is they can do 500 hours across all their properties of a certain class. Now this is important for people who have long terms and short terms because if I have let's say five long terms and five short terms, I have to meet material participation in my long terms separate from my short terms, right? So you know, number one, 500 hours. I call that the gold standard. Yeah. If you can meet 500 hours then you don't have to prove or track anybody else's time. So if I can prove 500 hours across my five long-term rentals, I'm good to go. The one test that we see that's common after that is a 100 hours more than any other person test. So let's say you can't you know, meet 500 hours total, but if you can meet 100 hours per property and more than any other person, then you qualify for that particular property. Um, and so short term. For long-term or short-term. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. So you can do 100 hours I didn't know that part was for short term as well. Yeah. For the hundred hour part. So the, the, so the seven tests are the same for each. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a good way to look yeah. at it. Because I always was under the impression short term had that hundred hour rule that long term didn't. No, long term's not the same seven. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. It's just we don't you know, long term we really don't see the guys doing the one hundred, most of them are hitting the five hundred. Sure. Yeah. And so if someone's listening now that, that thinks they qualify for the material participation, is it for both long-term and short-term that you can have a day job or just short-term? So for short-term rentals, what's really interesting is 
you can, for the most part, have a full-time W-2, you know, a high earning. We have tons of nurses. Uh, I have other CPAs, uh, attorneys that have a full-time paying job. But because of that material participation test for short-term rentals, and we'll kind of dive a little, I think we need to backtrack a little bit, but for short-term rentals, it's only, you could do a hundred hours and more than any other person. Right. So you can still work your 2000 hour job, spend a hundred hours in, in the rental property and, and qualify. Why it doesn't work for long-term rentals is in order to take a long-term rental, which is a passive activity, you need to have real estate professional status. So you need to basically spend what's called more than half your working time in real estate. So if I'm spending 2,000 hours as a CPA firm owner, I would have to spend 2,001 hours in real estate. I work 80 hours a week, but not every week. And you know the IRS isn't going to believe that either. So that's why it just makes it so material participation for short-term rentals has blown up over the last two to three years sure. because the cash flow on them is, is much greater. They're easier to finance. You know, you can you can buy short-term rentals with 10% down on secondary home loans, and the material participation tests are easier to meet than that of long terms. For sure. Mm-hmm. So so let's back up then. You said they need to qualify for every single property. So if someone has five properties, it's a hundred per property, right? Mm-hmm. Now, how would you recommend people track that? Yeah. So I actually have a time tracker on my website. So if you go to learnlikeacpa.com backslash free tools, there's a hours time log in Excel. So it pretty much tells you, hey, um, you know, here's the hours that count. Here's which ones don't count. Uh, really, you want to have the property address, date, time. What did you do, and what kind of proof do you have for it? You know, if you if you said you went to, you know, you drove to Home Depot to buy some tools to snake a drain, you know, you want to have maybe that receipt from Home Depot or the picture of you know the completed project. So, for yeah, I agree. We should probably should take a step back as well on the on the short term real real estate. One of the things that people like about it or gets popular is that ability to write things off quickly. Explain what that is for people in terms of like cost segregation because people hear it and they don't necessarily know what it means. They're just like, oh, my friend told me. So explain what cost segregation is, who should use it, who shouldn't use it, or how do they evaluate if their accountant's not having these conversations with them? Yeah. So cost segregation is just, it's really a time value of money play. So normally for short-term rentals, they get depreciated on a 39-year class life. So if I bought, let's say, a $390,000 short-term rental, I'm going to take that $390,000, I'm going to divide it by 39, and I'm going to get ten grand a year for 39 years that I can use towards my income. So if I made, let's say, twenty grand on the short-term rental, I have $10,000 of depreciation. So I get to tell Uncle Sam, hey, I even though twenty grand in cash flow hit my bank account, I only have to pay taxes on ten, right? And I get that same thing for 39 years. But what the cost segregation study allows you to do is rapidly speed up that depreciation. So, you know, instead of taking 10 grand in, in every year, you're probably taking 80 or 90 that first year, and then you're probably getting five or six for the remainder years, but you're taking that $80,000. And so now that 20 grand of income that I had, it actually gets brought down to zero. In fact, they actually have what's called a passive activity loss, right? And that loss without anything else, I can actually use to offset other rental properties or passive investment businesses that I'm in, right? But being able to accelerate those deductions, is really a time value money play. It goes back to what I talked about, about debt, taxes, and inflation. Because if you understand this, it's like, okay, you have these tax benefits that are banked up into your property and you get to decide, do you wanna stretch them out over 39 years? Or would you like to front load a little bit of those in the first year and then receive a little bit after the following years? It, it, it's just like, are you the borrower or the lender? 
well, if I'm the borrower, I want to be able to repay that that off as as far out and long as possible, right? So, in an example, like let's say I get fifty thousand of tax savings in year one, even if I do have to one day pay the tax savings back in year ten, if if my tax rate is equal on each side, I'm I'm getting an interest free loan for the government, yeah, right, and so. What cost segregation does for certain, you know, for certain taxpayers, it's it's going to accelerate the depreciation, and then hopefully they compare that that overall loss with their material participation to help offset some of their W two or business income. Right. So if someone's listening and they're like, I I heard I should do cost seg, but I don't qualify for material participation, they would not be able to write off their W two income. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but there's still situations in which even if they don't manage the property material participate where a cost segregation study could make sense you know you might you might have um we, we normally saw it a lot last year in 2021 where you had clients that were exiting their long-term rental portfolio so they sold a couple long-term rentals at, at big gains and then they bought these short-term rentals well that that long-term rental gain is a passive activity so again if you have those passive activity losses from the short-term rental you can use those losses to offset your cap you know your passive activity capital gain income. Um, another scenario where that might be beneficial is if you have just a ton of passive income overall, because what I like to tell people who are not uh, who are not real estate professionals or who do not self-manage, at least you should be netting out your passive income bucket, right? So if we were to draw a T between all your income and we were say non-passive and passive, right. any, any taxpayer can at least offset all their passive income bucket. And so, you know, for me, I'm I'm carrying forward so many losses from from last year, the year before, that basically anything I make in real estate in that passive bucket is going to be offset because of my losses that I have to carry forward. But like right. I said, at a bare minimum, you know, you know, let's see, give an example. Let's say you're let's say you're a thirty percent tax bracket. You bought a property last year. Um, now it's going to make you a hundred grand this year net. You're going to pay thirty thousand dollars in taxes on that property, or you know, I can go find a hundred thousand of depreciation somewhere else. With that thirty grand, I would have paid in taxes on right, and then use that to offset the income that I would have that particular year. So, what I really tell people is, it's almost like a hot potato mindset of you only you only get burned if you hold on to the thing. Yeah. Because if you receive cash in real estate, right? If I was to just sell those three long term rentals without doing anything else, I would have got burned. If I was to just buy the short term rental without really moving the money around and doing anything else, I would get burned. So it's like, how long can you defer that tax liability? Because Again, really, it is an arbitrage play, right? If I could get, you know, tax deductions in forty percent tax brackets year one, and then let's say when you know clients start to go to retire, so most likely their marginal tax bracket is a little lower, you know, it's lower. If I got deductions at let's say thirty-seven, but now my bracket is twenty-two, well, I just got a fifteen percent spread there, and I took advantage of time value money because I borrowed money in year one, and I didn't have to pay it back until you know year ten or year fifteen. Yeah, I really like where the way you're framing that because I feel like you're in the minority in the CPA community. Like I talk about that a lot on the podcast. Like mm-hmm. so many CPAs I feel like are obsessed with helping you save taxes in one particular year versus trying to like look out, but like like exactly you said, like you're gonna have a year where something really good happened, like maybe you sold a property at a, a big gain, you're like, okay, let's take advantage of ways to drop this. And then conversely, you're harvesting other years for those types of things. So it's like, as I look at it, it's strategies about paying less tax over a lifetime and playing the game. Like when you have spikes in income, when you have dips in income yeah. and trying to net it out. 
obviously yeah. without the ball, but trying to harvest those. Yeah, and, and you know, I, that's why I, I get into arguments with people online all the time where, you know, they want to do something creative with their primary residence, right? They want to convert a primary residence to a rental so they can do the depreciation, or they want to convert a primary to a rental so they can 1031 exchange it and defer that gain. But I would go, hey, guys, you're missing out on the whole Section 121 exclusion where you can actually sell your primary residence tax-free as long as you lived in it two out of the last five years. So tax-free always trumps tax-deferred. Yeah. In, in any scenario, if I can get, if I can harvest equity and tap into something tax-free, I'm always going to do it um, way more over tax-deferred. And, and like you said, it's just really about, hey, not how, how much money can we save you this year, but like how much money can we save you over the course of working together over your lifetime is really the goal that you're, is what, really what you're wanting to look for. So to that, to that point of, hey, is a cost segregation ben you know, beneficial? Well, you know, I might be in a tax bracket, let's say 2022. You know, we had some people that were, let's say 12 or 2020, 12 or 22% tax brackets where, okay, that may not make sense, but they're planning a sale in 2023. So their, their marginal tax bracket is going to be 37% or they plan on making more income in the future. So maybe it is beneficial to take the cost segregation at 12%, 22%, bank those losses and carry them forward to a year where you, you have a higher tax bracket. Yeah. No, I, I like that in general, like playing the game where you are looking out for the, the high tax years mm -hmm. and doing something strategic today, um, especially like I like that with the Roth world. Oh yeah, I have a lot of arguments with client CPAs these days where they're like they're trying a client's not making that much money and they're trying to get them to take the tax deductions. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why are we not funding the other side of this equation? Pay the damn tax and let them do whatever they're going to do with the money. Especially if they're real estate people, like because the ROI is typically higher than the stock market just because of leverage and all. Obviously, the perks that people know about. And what's your what's your take on the marginal tax bracket where? Roth makes sense. I typically would, I used to tell people kind of, you know, I still do about 28% marginal between federal and state. Anything below that makes sense to go Roth. Anything above it probably makes sense to look traditional. What is your take on that? I don't have a, a set in stone rule. It depends on the person because I also am in the camp right now where it's not just what someone's paying, but the relative amount, meaning in I talked about this on a couple episodes ago, maybe last episode, I can't remember. In 1981, the equivalent of the 35% tax bracket was 70%. So if you made, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but if you made the equivalent, I think of 350,000 today, that would have hit you in the 70% bracket. So that's that's been my outlook more in the last few years. Like it's not like because even people in the maxing out their brackets, like it's relative. If you think we're going to be in better or worse tax brackets in the future, then we bet on today's. Um, that's that's been so. Like I've had clients even in the highest brackets, and I'm like, I think we go rothier because you don't have much, and especially depending on what they're trying to do, because if they're going to like. If they're crypto people, I know that's a polarizing topic, but like if you're a crypto person, I want to do my best to get you to own that in a Roth. Because mm -hmm. if you think it's going to the moon, I don't care. I'm not personally a big crypto person, but for the people who think it's going to the moon, you don't want to pay the tax on the moon. Pay yeah. the tax on the seed. Yeah, no. So, right. So that's that's the way I look at it for a lot of people. Um, 
especially because depending on the age of people, the Roths have been forgotten by the most people because of, mm. of that misconception you said, like no one's really looking to be broke in retirement. So everyone gets fed alive by Wall Street that, you know, you're going to be having this extremely low income in retirement. And so it won't matter if you start liquidating these 401ks. Whereas that's not the goal with most entrepreneurs. They're not looking to be broke in retirement. Yeah. So and I wonder how much of that is actually the government seeding that <laughs> because they want people to convert their pay, convert to Roth and pay the taxes on it. You mean now versus previously or like... So one of the things that really bothers me that I like want to get off my chest is COVID and the 401k withdrawal. I mean, oh yeah, you know, they said, hey, you can go take 100k, no penalty, and you could defer the tax over three years. Well, we had clients where, you know, we for whatever reason we didn't ask or they had done that, and it's like, okay, now thirty three thousand is hitting your top marginal bracket. Did you have withholdings on that? <laughs> Probably not, you know. And then we look bad because it's oh. Why am I owing thirteen, fourteen thousand in taxes? But really, that was like a huge. It was like a modern day robbery to me because the amount of money that people pulled out of their four hundred one k's and never ended up repaying. And honestly, that was probably a higher. You know, I don't. I don't know the market pre COVID now off the top of my head, but that was probably at you know market peak. Let's say cash out. Yeah. Even if they were to rebuy today, the shares that they would rebuy. You know what I'm saying? No, I totally agree with you. And and they rob people of the future, I think. That, see that that stuff kind of drives me nuts why I'm like a big fan of like Matt and Mark. I know we talked about them before we hit record, like the directed IRA guys basically that, mm. that talk about self-directing because I came from like the stockbroker world in right, like right off of Wall Street. And so like, I've seen how much they don't really care about people um, just by the language. Like you can see, like I won't name them on here, but like I talk about them, like the big firms, you hear them say like, oh, get 500 grand, get a million, and then you could be our customer. It's like a lot more people would be able to have a half a million dollars or a million dollars if someone would help them like right out of college yeah. or teach them like financial literacy, which no school is teaching, um, at least no like high school and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, obviously you can take it in college, but on purpose you have to take it. Yeah, you do. Um, so I have an issue with a lot of the different things like that the government quote unquote allows, because I don't know if in your world you get pushback against like, well, should I do these IULs and the cash value life insurance play? And I feel like one of the biggest advantages there is that it's like for savings because in the financial advisory world, I'm amazed by how many people think that a, their best investment, there's like some magic to it. Like, oh, my best investment was my house, my 401k. It's like, no, those are the only two that you really couldn't touch. Like you were forced to so pay your mortgage. And both of them, like whether you were contributing, you might have yeah. been getting a match put in for decades. But probably that was probably gone before you got your paycheck. So you didn't really see it versus if it Correct. you had to actually go. Right. And that's another thing I always tell people with the self-employed is if everybody on April 15th had to write a check to the government, let's just say there'd be different people in office. <laughs> just, yeah. I, I totally, agree. <laughs> I totally agree, man. Like it's so, so that's where I agree. Like when the IRS or Congress essentially let you find ways to raid your savings. Mm -hmm. I like the provisions because people like us will find strategic ways to let people do it 
strategically like, hey, borrow it, build a yeah. business, put it back. You know, like we'll find cool loopholes. But I agree the vast majority of people will just be given a way to hang themselves. Yeah. And um, like I was at a networking event here in Vegas a few months ago and there was like all these entrepreneurs talking and I don't know the level of success they had. Um, a lot of them had big like social media following. So I don't know if that means, you know, like, as you know, that doesn't mm -hmm. translate to revenue per se. But anyway, they were talking about uh, one person like, hey, like there's like 50,000 of business credit you can get. Anyone can get it. There's pamphlets there. And everyone started cheering. And I turned to my buddy. I'm like, that is insane. Like I was probably one of the older people in the room, but I'm like they just literally are just giving everyone a gun to shoot themselves because mm -hmm. 50,000 of debt. It's like, if you don't even have a business plan, you're just like giving it out like candy. I'm like, this is how people get really injured financially. So that kind of stuff bothers me because I've seen it too many times where people like credit is a, a great tool, but you could also completely drown yourself with it. Yeah. So, um, but I agree with you that the government is very disenchanted. Like you're seeing it now, like the secure act 2.0, they put so much Roth into it, which I love, but you know what their motivation is. They want people to start bringing that register. Yeah. Another thing that I've noticed or kind of come to the realization that they've made, because we're not taught money in school about what these accounts are, how to open them and what do they do? It's like when you do see everything, it's almost like drinking from a fire hose. You know, that you have traditional 401k, Roth 401k. Oh, your employer matches it, but the employer's part is always traditional. And it's like you... Then there's an after tax. There's a traditional IRA, you know, Roth IRA. There's um, solo, you know, if they make it so complicated, it should literally just be okay. One account, you could do traditional Roth, max 25K. That's it. Like they would just make it so simple. But I mean, I can tell you how many people that I talked to, like multi million dollar net worth, don't know the tr difference between traditional and Roth. Oh, I, yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, our industry still has to like keep up with the nuances because it changes so much. Yeah. Um, so I totally agree with that. I, they, I don't know if the complication in it is a good thing or a bad thing. Cause I do like that. There's a lot of nuance that you and I can help people with that. Yeah. Majority can't like, obviously it helps keep us employed that someone's got to be able to help people navigate this stuff. But some of the things that, that handcuff people, I think is frustrating. Like, mm -hmm. um, the fact that you can't take control of your 529 plan and yet we have college it's like crazy expensive these days but yet they won't let parents drop 15k into that and then self-directed or your kid doesn't go to college and now that money is stuck there and you have all these issues trying to get it out so i agree like that that type of stuff is very disingenuous to me but i don't know like i like that they're I should say this from as a financial, putting on like my more financial planning hat. I like when they give us ways to get money in and out of these vehicles only because my back when I was like only on Wall Street and I couldn't sell anything but those. Like I couldn't do insurance, I couldn't do real estate. Now I'm completely independent what I offer people. So like I just try to be the consultant. Um, it was very hard to compete with that because young people are like, I don't want my money stuck for 30, 40 years. Whereas in real estate, obviously there's plenty of ways to get your money out, like through loans and yeah. or obviously just sell the property whenever you want. Same thing with real or uh, life insurance. Although there is a lockup that I feel like doesn't get talked about because you have yeah. to, you have season, to build yeah, 10 to 12 years. Yeah. 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 Otherwise so, you kill your account balance. Correct. So like if you don't want it to blow up, but technically you can pull the money out, but you risk destroying everything you work for in that. 
But so I do like when they give us tools to make them more apples to apples. But like we talked about a few minutes ago, most people take that money, never put it back, get hit with a surprise tax bill, and their financial situation just went from bad to worse. Yeah. So that's the stuff that you know drives me nuts. But do we have to pivot back to the real estate side? <laughs> yeah, I guess we should. For so so, let's give people some more tactics. So, if someone is trying to think how to put this, enlighten people on the on the world of CPAs because I think. Someone who's listening that has one or multiple rental properties is like, I got a CPA, I'm good. What should they know about how little, not, no, I don't want to say this in a disparaging way, but why should they work with someone like yourself that's an expert in real estate versus just being like, hey, this is my, this is my friend's CPA, so they're a CPA. Yeah, I always, I, I mean, I always go back to the doctor analogy. I think CPAs and even financial planners are going to be, are more focused on, you know, their, the riches are in the niches. And so, you know, our specialty is in real estate. And so we can really go in and help and look at somebody's tax return a different way than just a CPA that's a general, generalist would look at it. Yeah. And that's why I tell people all the time, they're, they ask, well, how do I know if somebody's a good, you know, short-term rental CPA? And, I'll, and I have typically like five to six bullet points that they can um, ask questions. And one of those questions is, well, can you name, you know, what markets are your clients in? Now, I can name every single big short-term rental market, you know, from California to Florida, all the way up to New York City, and then even in Washington, right? Like, I can name every single big short-term rental market there. You know, are they familiar with some of the rules regarding these passive loss rules that we're talking about? Most of them are not. Yeah. And so, can they look at your profit and loss and knowing what region your property is in, be able to know what type of expenses you are, you have, right? So, for example, I looked at uh, profit and loss from a property, a portfolio of three properties in the Smoky Mountains. Didn't see a line on for pest control. Um, knowing, you know, having cabins there, knowing what they cost to run, I know you're paying pest control because yeah. bugs and spiders and bears and everything. <laughs> and the cat, like, you know, you guys don't want that. So I know you have pest. Oh, oh yeah, you know, we spent six hundred bucks on pest control last year. Yeah, you know, here's the here's all the invoices to the people. Right. Yeah. You know? So it's like those things where if you do, if you are large enough and you're ready to work with a real estate CPA, they're worth their weight in gold. Because they're going to find or help you save way more money than, you know, not that the generalist may or may not be able to do that, but the real estate CPA is going to be very proactive with you saving it. A lot of the generalist CPAs that you use in real estate, they're very reactive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that can't be emphasized enough that, that the vast majority are just looking at the history and recording it yeah. and not looking forward. And unfortunately, a lot of taxpayers think, oh, yeah, I'm filing my taxes with a CPA, that means that uh, I'm you know, working with a CPA and I'm doing all the right things. Well, it's like, well, no, you know, if, if you just engaged me in, you know, January, February, 2023 to do your 2022 tax return, I've not, I've no idea how much you're going to owe or pay because I haven't been working with you. And I think the, the financial literacy and the re realization comes with teaching people or helping people understand the difference between a, you know, a tax strategist and then just somebody who files your tax return. Yeah. Not just somebody who follows your tax return, but a, a tax strategist and a tax filer. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super helpful. Um, let's let's talk about a, a specific, like the deductions that people get for real estate. Uh, what what do you recommend for people in terms of taking a tax deduction to look for properties? So if you're if you live in um, I don't know, say St. Louis, I just picked somewhere in the middle or Chicago. 
and you're considering buying a property in Vegas, in Miami, in Dallas, I don't know. What constitutes a business trip to go look for property versus if you're like, well, I'm actually going to Miami to hang out, but I will look at a couple of properties. Yeah. Like how should a, an investor or business owner in that yeah. regard look? When's it a deduction? When's it not? Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the IRS is pretty clear on this as far as how they outline it. So, and you said it right there, business, right? Is it a you know business trip? So if you, let's say I, my home base is in Chicago, I live in Chicago and I go to Miami and like you said, you know, the primary purpose is for vacation, but I'm, I might go check out a few rentals. You know, they're not going to let, let you write off your entire trip. In fact, you're not even deemed to be doing business in Florida yet because you haven't actually established a business or had a rental there. So any travel costs or any expenses related to that are not going to be deductible unless you close on a property there. Now, once you've established business and the, the idea of establishing businesses uh, could, could be, um, you know, a little gray area, right? If I, let's say I bought, you know, from Chicago, I bought a rental in Miami and then I go up north and buy one in Pensacola, you know, hours away. Am I already considered in business in Pensacola? Well, I'm already in Florida and Florida is a big short-term rental market, so maybe, right? But the rule, the rule basically is, is if you're not actually in business, you're not able to deduct the expenses unless you do close on the property. But let's say I had a property in Miami already, it's up and running, and then I go check out more properties then those expenses are deductible because I'm already in the business there. Okay. So for anyone listening, if they, they're doing that thing, like they're, you're in Chicago, you fly to Vegas, you fly to Miami, you only end up closing on Miami. You can't write off your flight to Vegas. Right. So just even if they spent the time looking, how, what is the, um, the time delay? So if you went and looked at a property, as we're recording this, it's the middle of May, 2023, you're here in Vegas, you look at a couple of rentals, you close February of 2024. Can you go back and write it off for 2023 or because it's a different calendar year, you wouldn't recommend that to a client? Yeah, I mean, some uh, people have different positions on that. We we would most likely probably look to capitalize those costs to the acquisition okay. and not necessarily expense them right away, uh, just to kind of err on the safe side. Got but it. There's not really guidance on that. <laughs> There, uh, the IRS has in publication 527 what they call pre-rental expenses, which do kind of include costs before the property goes live. And they say that pre-rental expenses can either be expensed or capitalized. So it's really... So on the, on the other topic of deductions for real estate owners or real estate investors, what's one that you often see people miss? Uh, one that I often see miss, I mean, a lot of people are using their phone to manage their Airbnbs, so, and it really extensively too. They're using their phone or their data, so they're not really writing off their phone bill. Uh, home office gets talked about a lot, but it really isn't all that great. I mean, it's a very minor deduction in theory, but, you know, I'll throw home office in there. I think the deductions that people miss is because they have really bad bookkeeping, yeah. right? So they're like scrambling to put together all their books and records, they have transactions. That's where you're going to make the most money when it comes to finding these like loopholes or deductions is to just have rock solid books that you're keeping up with every month. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Ryan, this has been phenomenal. I appreciate you coming in. Where can people find you, learn more about you? Yeah, I'm on all social media platforms. It's going to be at Learn Like a CPA. So that's Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. I have a Facebook group called Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. We got about 5,700 real estate investors in there asking questions every single day. And um, I still do manage all my messages. So you can go ahead and shoot me a message on any of those platforms. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thank you for joining us this week on Build Your Wealth Muscle. 
The links mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes. For video clips and more information on tax and retirement strategies for fitness entrepreneurs, please follow my Instagram at the Pat Darby. If you found value in this episode, please do us a favor and share with a friend. If you tag me, that'd be appreciated also. Lastly, for help implementing any of the topics discussed, please book a call. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.